0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: On both sides of the Atlantic, at Cardington in Bedfordshire in the UK and at Akron in Ohio in the United States, teams of engineers and designers are hard at work, constructing great floating things, things that are lighter than air and as big as your average jetliner. Both teams are essentially engaged in an effort to build a new stage of aviation, not the future of flying as such, but certainly a future. And one that, for all the high-tech materials and technology involved, well, looks very much like the past. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome, as always, to Future Tense. So what are they building? Well, you probably guessed already. They're building airships, modern zeppelins, if you like. And it's not an easy task.
2: It has been a very troubled path, in part because they are a very experimental technology still. When you count the number of airships that have been built compared to the number of planes, perhaps hundreds of airships, and we're talking about millions of fixed-wing aircrafts,
1: Mark Pising, aviation journalist and regular contributor to BBC Future.
2: Some of the proposals have gone on for a kind of hybrid airship which is kind of part plane part airship and that's even more experimental. The airship industry and it is a cottage industry have suffered from some poor management, overhype and a lack of resources and finance really. So over the last 15 years you also had a lot of military money especially in America coming in because they wanted to use airships for surveillance or transport. Military money comes with its own problems. The military standards of engineering are a lot higher than civilian, and it's very easy to produce an aircraft that is suitable for the military, not so useful for the civilians. And when the military council the project, because it's very political, you know, you have a few problems. Again, the military, I think, often wanted airships developed far quicker than they were really ready to be. So it kind of never really gave some of the projects the chance to actually achieve their potential. People are so used to seeing them around in popular culture that people forget how experimental they are. Now, the two
1: airship projects we're focusing on in this program are well-advanced. One is Shrouded in Mystery, the pet project of Sergey Brin, one of Google's co-founders, and the other involves British company HAV, which has just signed a supply agreement with a major Spanish airline. We'll start with Sergey Brinslot, LTA Research, because Mark Pising is one of the few aviation reporters who's managed to get them to open up. Just a little.
2: They've kept themselves quite kind of secret. I suppose they brought over from Silicon Valley this kind of cultural secrecy and control of information. But I was lucky enough to talk to them, and they've got a niche, and that's moving again into a bit broader... Idea of logistics in general, so not just international aid, but logistics in general. They've got a lot of money, obviously, and their design is quite clever. They've gone to something quite conservative, so they're going back to the kind of rigid Zeppelin style airship. They are going slowly with a culture of safety, that they are kind of trying to learn the lessons from the past and apply them and add new technology. For example, one of the amazing things they've come up with is a way of when you used to build these huge airships. And remember, the problem underlying all these schemes is no one's built airships on a vast scale since the 1930s. So, no one, no one remembers how to do it. So everyone's now doing it for the first time. So, you used to have this kind of build these kind of very, very fragile metal frameworks around which you kind of put the skin of the airship. But these would be like hundreds of feet tall, and the people would have to work almost on ladders along the sides, and it's very slow. So, what he and his team have created is kind of a jig that will rotate this huge structure. So the workers can stay on the ground and work safely and quickly while the airships gradually rotated round. I think that's kind of quite interesting, applying new innovation to reduce costs and increase production.
1: And where are they up to in terms of the actual prototypes? I understand they've got two called Pathfinder 1 and Pathfinder 3?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the classic thing with all these airship projects is the prototypes are always delayed. They would always say it's in this year and one of these companies will say this is in this year, then it'll be pushed back another year and another year. But they seem to be getting closer. I think it's been slightly slowed down because of COVID and things like that. So Pathfinder 1 is nearing completion, and they are starting to build Pathfinder 3 at the same time they're trying to finish Pathfinder 1.
1: Now, we tend to think of airships as passenger crafts. Yeah. But as you were saying, the emphasis this time seems to be on transport as much as anything else, cargo transport.
2: Now, in the golden age of the airship in the 1930s, I mean, the airships were a very credible competitor for transatlantic travel, for example, and an airship could get to New York, from London, faster than the liner could get from Southampton. So they were a real competitor to the ocean liners, faster than the ocean liners. And then obviously aircraft and flying boats and other fixed wing aircraft came along. So that's where kind of their origin was in almost in a sense. So since then, people have been looking for new niches. You know, so the American Navy used smaller airships during the war and up into the 1960s to hunt submarines. And then since the turn of the century, it's been kind of surveillance. You can have an airship that flies over Afghanistan, monitoring people. And also the other big thing people identified was heavy transport. You can take machinery from a factory straight to the mine in the middle of Alaska or Siberia without all the cost of transshipments and all the problems associated with that. And then perhaps, depending on the mineral, you could bring the mineral back. You could take soldiers slowly you know, to a new base on the other side of the world. So lots of people have identified if there's a niche, it's going to be for big airships, it'd be that.
1: And that low emissions factor, I mean, that's important here, isn't it, in terms of trying to sell these as an idea, as a concept?
2: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, Aviation's got a huge problem with emissions. And I suppose one future would be, if you want us to fly in the future, then perhaps we're going to have to accept flying more slowly and save the planet. And the airships would be one way of maintaining international travel, you know, about producing almost kind of no carbon dioxide. Because you could have electric motors powered by solar cells all around the skin of the airship. That's one of the possibility. I know Brins LTA are looking at hydrogen fuel cells to power electric motors. So there's lots of technologies you can use to make it almost a carbon zero.
1: One of the problems with the previous generation of airships was yes, they're lighter than air, but that actually made them unstable during. Bad weather conditions. Yeah. Are they factoring that in? Do we know? How are they how are they dealing with that?
2: That's a really good question. I don't think that problem has totally gone away. The one way they're factoring it in is use of radar. better use of navigation aids so you can actually spot the storms coming and you can navigate your way around it, like many airliners do today. I mean, to say that's a weakness of an airship is a bit unfair when most commercial airlines avoid storms, you know, for very good reason. There's better understanding now of the physics of airships, of these huge airships. There's better modelling. The materials are better. Because you have to remember back in the 30s, we've had very little understanding of the forces that were acting on these huge metal structures. And it's quite interesting. There's two different approaches. The Germans flew Zeppelins for you know, 20 years after the First World War. Well, actually, it was a bit less than that. About 18 years after the First World War. Until the Hindenburg crash, they had no crashes. No one died. Perfectly safe because they flew them in a very conservative way. And now, obviously, they're near misses and things like that, but nothing crashed. They flew them in a very conservative way, taking account of the weather and being respectful. But the British and the Americans, especially, really pushed the technology that, in the end, led to some of the spectacular crashes that you had in America and Britain. The the airships weren't ready to be flown, especially in storm like conditions. They hadn't been test flown enough, but there was this kind of overconfidence. So they had a disastrous record compared to German airships. So there's an element of that, is what is the culture they're going to be used in.
1: Aviation journalist Mark Peising. And for all the airship tragics out there, he's also the author of N4 Down, The Hunt for the Arctic Airship Italia. As Mark mentioned, the dream of a cleaner way of flying is very important to the modern airship industry's vision and marketing. Unlike Sergey Brin's LTA... The British aviation firm HAV has focused on passenger travel rather than heavy lifting, and they now finally have an agreement with Spanish airline Air Nostrum, as Charles Alcock explains. Charles is the senior editor of the aviation website Futureflight.ero.
0: They've been working on the idea of bringing an airship into commercial aviation service for more than a decade. This is a real... Long term mission for them. And to be honest, it hasn't always gone smoothly. They've struggled to find funding. They've struggled to find what I would call the right opportunity in the market. I mean, going back 10 or more years, honestly, this was seen in the aviation sector as a bit of a sort of outlandish idea right on the fringes of the industry. Fortunately, from their point of view, suddenly what they're proposing makes a lot more sense in the context of the pressure that the industry is under. To basically get greener to drastically reduce its carbon footprint and the technology that they're proposing with these airships is part of that equation and they're starting to get some funding and they're now starting to get some market momentum with commitments like this one from the spanish airline air nostrum
1: and the airlander 10 itself where is it at in terms of development
0: they've been working on you know what we call a prototype essentially and as i understand it they've largely got that ready Just to be clear, they're building on earlier prototypes that they've been working on. You know, these new aircraft don't just come out of nowhere. They tend to have several iterations. So the Airlander 10 is the latest version of their airship. And, you know, they refer to themselves as hybrid air vehicles. The key word hybrid there has a sort of twofold meaning. It's hybrid in the sense that it's not an aircraft with wings. It's an airship filled, in this case, with helium gas that sort of does the work of of a wing, if you like, in maintaining lift. And it's hybrid also in the sense that they're proposing a hybrid propulsion system, a mixture of, you know, a conventional turbine or diesel engine and electric propulsion.
1: What does it look like and how is it constructed?
0: At first glance, it's not radically different from, you know, airships that we've seen before. I mean, the first thing you see is this vast sort of rugby ball-shaped hull, you know, which is very characteristic of almost any airship. The key differences, I suppose, is that, you know, towards the rear of the fuselage, there's some little, a layperson would call them small mini wings. And I think they're more like empennage on the tail of an aircraft. And then in the four corners of the hull... There are what I would call ducted fans. You know, they they look a little bit like a sort of hairdryer, basically, where, you know, there's an outside structure and then a fan in the middle. And those are the propulsors. Those are, if you like, the propellers that push the aircraft forward. So there are some quite significant design changes to what's come before. The use of helium to fill the hull is also quite significant in that that mitigates the risk of, you know, the aircraft catching fire.
1: But what about this agreement with Spain's Air Nostrum? The leasing deal announced in June would see HAV deliver 10 100-seat Airlander airships to the Spanish carrier beginning in 2026. Despite the announcement, though, it's not a done deal. Not yet. But Charles Orcock believes it's likely to go ahead.
0: Air Nostrum in Europe is a very serious and significant regional airline. It's part of the Iberia Group in Spain. And the fact that it's even willing to publicly say, yeah, we're interested in going down this road and introducing airships really is quite significant and gives, I think, the manufacturer some credibility. I think it points to the fact that airlines realize that they have to take some serious steps to reduce their carbon footprint more than just you know changing the type of fuel they use. And I think Air Nostrum deserves some credit for at least being ready to explore this and, and try and understand what it would take to make that happen.
1: And is the idea that using these types of airships would offset, if you like, the continuing use of jets elsewhere in their network?
0: Yes, I think that's exactly it. I mean, they're not saying, look, overnight we're going to ground all our jets and we're we're going to have nothing but airships. You've got to view this as sort of a continuum that the, the whole industry is following you know, I think what they're doing is with hybrid air vehicles, they're conducting a study essentially. And they're saying what parts of our network of our network of flights could possibly be served by airships instead of say twin turboprop aircraft. And personally, I think it's going to be a bit of a niche. It's going to work in certain geographic contexts better than others. I suspect that where it might find its way is in sort of island hopping services, you know, between the Balearic Islands in the Mediterranean, for example. And the other aspect that makes it somewhat compelling is that these airships potentially are going to be able to land, you know, right in the middle of cities or dock sides, if you like, in oceanside communities. They're going to be able to completely bypass the airports. And that's where the fact that they fly much slower than normal airplanes could be mitigated by the fact that they could allow passengers to avoid the whole airport experience. And in Europe, that's an experience that's pretty wretched right now and getting more wretched with every passing day in terms of the time taken.
3: We
1: know that trains, the train networks in in some countries and some places have had a bit of a a rebirth simply because people are looking for a slow tourism experience. Would these types Mm -hmm. of airships, would they also play a possible part in that niche?
0: Yes, very much so. I mean, to be honest, I think the first niche for airships that I think we're going to see is not so much carrying, you know, 100 passengers, which is what Air Nostrum has in mind, but there is a version of the Airlander aircraft that would seat maybe just 10 or a dozen passengers in a very, very luxurious cabin. And there's talk of them being used for high-end tourism basically. So for example, you and nine friends could do a tour of the Norwegian fjords and get, you know, a truly exceptional view of the landscape there at relatively low altitude and slow enough that you can really take it in and enjoy it. Because yes, you can go up in an aircraft and, and you can see things like the fjords or the Great Barrier Reef, but you're moving so fast, you don't necessarily have the time to take
3: it in.
2: there is this compulsion amongst people about airships. And I I wouldn't say they're necessarily thing of the past. I almost think what attracts people to airships is a sense of this alternate universe. If a few things had happened differently, airships would still be flying now. There's nothing like if you stand in one of these old massive airship hangars. The air feels so thin that you can almost put your hand out like in a Hollywood movie and you'll be in a different reality. I think there's an element of that. I think there's also kind of an engineering fascination because I've long been fascinated with engineers and entrepreneurs who go back to these fast technologies and try and give them another chance when they haven't worked before. And I think there's a sense of this should work, there's almost ego, you know, I mean, I'm a brilliant engineer, this should work, it hasn't worked before, but I'm the one who's going to solve it this time. I wonder whether there's an element of that as well.
0: When I first, as an aviation reporter, started hearing about airships, of course, you know, the great Zeppelin sprung to mind from the 1920s and 30s. But honestly, for the generation younger than me and the the generation younger than that, I don't think that's even in their minds. You know, if if I showed this to uh, my 28-year-old daughter, I don't think she'd be thinking of the Zeppelin. She would probably see this as a modern alternative. And the fact is, The momentum for green aviation has really escalated in the last couple of years. And really, the aviation industry now has a strong imperative to seriously shake things up and reduce emissions in a way that we've not seen before. And I think airships are part of that equation. And insofar as they are, they will be seen as a thing for the future, not a thing of the past.
1: A new horizon, or another false dawn? We'll just have to wait and see. Charles Orcock, and before him, Mark Pising. This is Future Tense, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. I'm Anthony Fennell. Roger,
0: tranquillity. We can't be on the ground.
1: To flight of a very different kind now. And new research out of Canada appears to have confirmed one of space travel's biggest problems. How do you keep astronauts healthy in a zero-gravity environment? A long-term study conducted by Professor Stephen Boyd at the University of Calgary has been examining how human bone density is
4: affected by space travel. And the results aren't encouraging. We're very interested in understanding how bone changes in space and that's been known for a long time that that happens using a very standard clinical tool called DEXA, Dual X-ray Absorbed Geometry, and it measures... It's kind of like a calibrated x ray that measures how much bone you have. What that doesn't tell you is much about the bone architecture. And so we're using a, a new technology. It's called high resolution peripheral quantitative computed tomography, which is a mouthful. Basically, it's high resolution three dimensional measurements of the bone structure. And so we're using that system to monitor the bone architecture of the astronauts before and after they go to space. So the study began in 2013, and it took us up until last year to have all 17 astronauts be measured before they went to space, within a few weeks of returning, actually a week of returning, and then at six months and 12 months post-flight, so we can monitor their recovery.
1: And the astronauts that you monitored, well, they were present on the International Space Station, so they were up there for
4: a considerable period of time. That's right. There were 17 astronauts. They were all on the International Space Station. Typically, it's supposedly a six month mission, but it varies quite a bit actually. Some were up there for a little over four months and some were up there for a little over seven months.
1: Now you found that they do lose bone density as a result of being in
4: space. How significant was the loss? The loss that we measured varied depending on how long they were up on the ISS. And so the longer time they spend there, the more bone they lost. But on average, what they lost in space would be the equivalent to about two decades of loss for men and women of that age, you know, in the 40s, typically, on Earth. So it's quite significant amount of bone loss in a short period of time.
1: And do they make it up when they return to Earth?
4: Well, that's the key part that we were trying to understand with this study. So what we did is we measured them right when they returned and then up to a year after they returned. And what we found is that some of the astronauts, particularly the ones who spent a long time in space, weren't able to recover all the bone that they had lost while in space. And in fact, you know, I said that they lost equivalent roughly of two decades of bone while on the ISS. They recovered about one decade's worth of that. So they still had about a one decade deficit by 12 months.
1: quite amazing figures aren't they when you think that we're only talking about a matter of months and yet the impact as you say is measured in decades
4: one of the first things when i started doing research in the area of bone was realizing actually how dynamic bone is in our bodies and you know we grow bone in our youth we hit about max peak bone mass in our 20s and from there we stabilize for a while and then we start to lose bone over the lifespan So it's quite dynamic. It's happening throughout our lifetime that we're having changes to our bone mass.
1: And what's the effect of a loss in bone density? What's the effect on a bone structure and overall health?
4: Well, the issue, we always talk about bone density when we're talking about bone health, but really nobody really cares about bone density directly. They're using it as a surrogate to say how strong your bone is. And so what we don't want to do is lose bone strength. And of course, when you're losing density, typically you're also losing strength. But that's actually where our study gets a little bit interesting in that we are measuring these crew members' bones at the resolution of about 61 micrometers. So a human hair is about 100 micrometers thick. So it gives us very fine detail. So what we're able to do with our technique is to actually see the underlying structure of the bone. People always use the analogy for right or wrong of the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower is a, you know, a strong structure made up of rods of steel, let's say. Bone is actually not too different in the sense that there are these interconnections that create the strength of the bone. And when we lose density, again, using the analogy of the tower, what you're doing is losing the steel. But in losing that steel, what happens is these disconnections occur. These, these rods start to become disconnected well in space. Then when we return to Earth, we build bone back up again on the existing structure at that time. If we've lost these connections, we don't magically reconnect them. Instead, we thicken what's remained. And so even if our density is partially recovered, the structure of the bone actually might be permanently altered. And that's what we're really interested in monitoring.
1: So there are significant implications here, aren't there, for space travel, for human-based space travel in the future?
4: Absolutely. And one of the major interests of NASA and all the international space agencies, we work with the Canadian Space Agency, is that while we're looking at the ISS right now on missions that are typically six months, they have gone up to one year in duration, but very rarely. But in the future, we're looking at missions, you know, if we were talking about a mission to Mars, we're probably looking at roughly two years of microgravity. And what's really important is to understand Within the time frame that we studied, have we actually hit rock bottom in terms of bone loss? Or would those astronauts continue to lose bone if they spend even more time in space? It's an open question right now and one that we're interested in examining in the future.
1: And I guess you're not going to know the answer to that until astronauts actually do spend more time
4: up there. That's true. And actually what NASA has organized is a multi-pronged study. It's called Cypher. Cipher is designed to look at many aspects of human health in space and specifically to understand whether or not the changes that we measure in bone and other systems, the cardiovascular system, for example, whether they stabilize at the six-month mark or whether they would continue to decrease or to be affected by spaceflight. And so what that study will do is actually take some astronauts who are going to spend a year on the International Space Station and see if what happens to them is even more severe than the 6-month astronauts.
1: Does that mean that based on on your findings that the idea of say a human crewed flight to Mars just simply isn't feasible?
4: I wouldn't go as far as to say that. What we've shown is that you lose a, quite a bit of bone in that 6-month mission. What we're hoping is that in a 12-month mission that there actually isn't too much more loss occurring. And if that's the case, then these people, if they come back from Mars, and I guess that's a big question too right now, hopefully won't have lost so much bone that they aren't permanently affected, you know, at risk of fracture upon return to Earth. It's still an open question to understand that for sure.
1: Are there specific exercises that astronauts can do in space in order to try and, if not prevent bone density loss, at least to try and minimise it?
4: Absolutely, and exercises, nutrition as well as an important aspect. But with exercises, NASA has made quite a bit of progress in trying to mitigate the bone loss. There are different kinds of exercise that occur on the International Space Station. There's a treadmill that you can run on. There's a, an ergometer that you can cycle on. And then there's a, it's called Advanced Resistive Exercise Device, ARED, that is designed to simulate weightlifting like you would do on Earth. They are trying to minimize the effects on the whole body, of which, of course, I'm mostly interested in the bone effects. And so exercises that you would do, for example, with the ARED system, advanced resistive exercise device, seem to mitigate some of the bone loss, but can't prevent it entirely. So there's still work to be done in trying to find ways to mitigate that bone loss.
1: How concerned have astronauts been about this issue?
4: Well, nobody likes to hear that there could be permanent changes to their bones trying to keep this a bit into perspective, you know, these are quite healthy, active individuals in the prime of their life, basically. And although they do lose a lot of bone while in space, it's not so much that at this point that they're fracturing. However, if they were on repeated missions, or if they spent extremely long time in microgravity, for example, trips to Mars, then maybe it becomes more of a pertinent issue but nobody likes to hear that they may have had permanent changes to their skeleton as a result of the space flight.
1: Well, Professor Stephen Boyd, thank you very much for your time.
4: You're welcome. Thanks very
1: much for your interest. And Professor Boyd is with the University of Calgary in Canada. Go to the Future Tense website if you want more details. Now, next time on the program, microbiological robots, dare I say, living robots we'll hear from Tufts University developmental biologist Douglas Blackiston about his work and what it might mean for the health industry in particular.
3: You know, I think there's sort of a a cute sci-fi angle to building a robot, and I think there's a lot of reasons why you would want to build a very small robot out of cells. It's it's difficult to build a metal robot on the scale of half of a millimeter in size that's self-powered. And so those are the fun examples, but I think practically where we'll see the most impact is on the medical front. So number one, there's already been efforts underway from our group and other groups to build these out of mammalian cell types or even human cells for a vast degree of of human medicine. And second, we're learning really fundamental questions about how cells organize and how they move. And so the types of cilia that I use, the the little hair-like structures that are on the surface are the same cilia that are in our airways. And the defects that we see in our airways also impact the types of things that i build in the lab and we've learned a lot about how these self-organize and how we can get them to move around and polarize and it's actually given us some insight into a number of airway diseases that humans face currently and so i think that these are just beginning to scratch the surface and the types of things that they can teach us about a number of human illnesses as well as future therapies for human disease they're being called xenobots Microscopic Biological Robots, and their
1: creator, Douglas Blackiston, will join us on the next edition of Future Tense. My thanks, as always, to co-producer Currents of Anifits. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers.